This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 4. Last winter, as I stood in the streets of Jerusalem with Jamie and Caden, I couldn't help but notice with fresh eyes the competing belief systems that all collide in one place. We visited the Western Wall where devout Jews pray to Yahweh as they await the promised Messiah. We saw the Dome of the Rock where Muslims pray to Allah at the place that Muhammad is said to have transported during his night journey. We toured the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where Catholics and Protestants alike remember the death of Jesus. There is also in the region Druze and Zoroastrians, secularists and more, all with different understanding of who God is, what the purpose of life is, and what happens when we die. As I stood in the same place where this lame man was healed in Acts 3, the very place where Peter preached the sermon we studied last week, I couldn't help but think of the exclusive claim of Jesus. Jerusalem was not only the city that Jesus loved, where he ate his last meal, where he suffered his deepest betrayal, where he died on a sinner's cross, and where he rose to life again. This was the place where he said to his disciples in an upper room, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one else in history made the claims that Jesus did. He never said he was a way, but the way, the only way. The Gospel of John records other statements Jesus made, like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Our passage today concludes with one of these definitive statements about Jesus. This time only, it's not spoken by our Lord, but by his disciple, Peter, who said, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our culture consistently tells us this can't be true. But the scripture constantly says it is. The message of Jesus and his cross are a stumbling block to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the rock of our salvation. The sign of the lame man's healing in chapter 3 made way for a sermon to be preached. That sermon that was preached set the focus on Jesus and the saving power of his name. The name of Jesus. This week in preparing for 
the sermon, I sat down at the piano multiple times and, and sang through songs that mentioned our Savior by name. In doing so, I remember a song I sang when I, I first started playing guitar and uh, in leading worship. The song simply said, Jesus, Jesus, holy and anointed one, Jesus. And then the chorus began by saying, your name is like honey on my lips. And I remember singing with faith who Jesus is and what that meant to me as a young person. My prayer is that as we think about the name of Jesus, and as we continue to build our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, that it would cause our hearts to sing. So that when we think of his name and remember all that Christ has done for us, our hearts would soar with love and affection for Jesus. Is the name of Jesus your only hope? Does his name cause your heart to sing? In Acts 4, 1-12, Peter stands before the most powerful men in Israel and boldly proclaims that no other name can save except the name of Jesus Christ. There are four marvelous truths we learn about Jesus from this passage. Jesus, the name that divides. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the cornerstone. And Jesus, the only name that saves. For those of you who are able, let me encourage you to stand to your feet as we read now from God's holy and inerrant word. Acts 4, verses 1 to 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. The number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. 
The first reality we find in our passage is Jesus, the name that divides, verses 1 to 4. As we move from the sermon back to the narrative, Luke calls attention to two contrasting responses to the gospel message. These reactions recorded here are not unique to this event, but are seen throughout the New Testament. The two responses are rejection and belief. The first response we meet is the rejection of Jesus Christ. It seems that even before the sermon comes to a proper end, a group of temple officials rush in to stop the commotion and silence these unauthorized preachers. Verse 1 says this religious mob was greatly annoyed. They were worn out. They were not able to put up with any more. Not only because they were teaching without permission, but more specifically, the content of what they were proclaiming. That those who believed in Jesus would experience resurrection from the dead. Luke is careful to mention that the Sadducees were there. A powerful group of aristocrats who enjoyed power and kept Israel in order. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife at all, which is probably why they were so sad, you see. (laughs) You're welcome. I appreciate that you guys still laugh at that joke after all these years. So seriously, though, this group objected to the idea of resurrection at all. We find that in Luke 20. They're particularly opposed to Christians Because they not only claimed Jesus himself had risen from the dead, but all who believed in him would rise as well. For now, we note their reaction to Peter's preaching. They arrest them and put them in overnight custody. If we're reading this account for the first time, I wonder how many of us would think back to the the scene, having maybe already read Luke's gospel And there he records another scene just a few weeks earlier where the same group of people arrest Jesus, put him in prison by night, and of course, three days later, or I'm sorry, the next day, he is put to death. So we might think, hold on a minute. Is that really how the story is supposed to go? The resurrected, ascended Christ has sent his spirit to empower the church for witness. The good guys are not supposed to be arrested. And what Luke does here reminds me of the the movie I watched as a child, The Princess Bride. If you have some free time this afternoon, that might be helpful for you to watch. Um, In The Princess Bride, any time the scene gets too intense... The granddad, which is Peter Falk, uh, pulls out of the story just to make sure his grandson is doing okay, a very young Fred Savage. Uh, Kids, you'll just have to ask your parents or grandparents who these people are. And um, he does that just to keep his grandson encouraged. He doesn't want him to lose heart. Here, Luke breaks from the storyline to give us some important information to assure us that this isn't all that's going on in God's story. In this rejection, this leads us to the second response we encounter, which is belief. Verse 4, the apostles may be imprisoned, but many who had heard the word believed. In fact, the number of men who'd already believed has now risen to 5,000, he says. 
Luke mentioned at the end of chapter 2 that 3,000 believers were added to their number, to the church in one day as they repented of sin, turned to Christ, and were baptized. At the beginning of Acts 4, he includes that number had now swelled to 5,000 in just a few weeks following Pentecost. The Greek word used for men is just that, males. So most scholars think that the Christian community now just in Jerusalem had now reached easily 15,000 people. So take heart, friends. It may look bleak, but the gospel is advancing. With the first mention of opposition in the book of Acts, we learn that though the messengers may be detained, the message cannot be. We'll see this theme repeated again and again in the chapters to come. Let me pause here for a moment and remind us also to take heart. As we see headlines of the global church facing horrendous persecution, as we see the American church fractured by sin, the growing hostility of our culture against us, we must not lose sight of the gospel growth both in us and around us. The headlines don't tell all that God is doing in this world. Most of what he's doing, you won't know till eternity. But he is at work all over this world, working all things according to his purposes. And sometimes it's hard to see that. Don't lose heart. The great divide we note in this passage is the same one we see in our world today. Many hear the message of salvation in Christ and it moves them to anger. They are greatly annoyed by that message. Yet to many of us, even in this room, there is no sweeter sound than the name of Jesus in our ear and what he has done for us. As I thought about it this week, this promise from the words of Jesus in John 6, 37 came to mind, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He has no doubt about this. He's going to, every person that he's chosen will come to faith in Christ, in time, in his perfect plan, And whoever comes to him will never be cast out. Christ will have every one of his people. What are we to do in the meanwhile? Well, we scatter the seed of the gospel everywhere we can. We share the good news of Jesus, the name that divides. Next, we turn our attention to Jesus, the resurrection and the life, verses 5 to 10. The next day, a group gathers consisting of Annas, who served as the high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. He's no longer the high priest, but he's still called that, like like we would do for a president of our nation. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the acting high priest at this time, this is the same man who sentenced Jesus to death, handing him over to Pilate, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple guards, everyone who's anyone is here. The group gathered was known as the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 members, a council that controlled the religious and political life of Israel. We know from ancient writings outside the Bible 
that when the Sanhedrin gathered like this, they gathered in a half-moon shape, a semicircle, if you will, and they put the people being accused right in the middle. And so here we find this scene where a group of political lords and religious leaders, the most powerful men in the place, place in their midst two untrained, uneducated fishermen. After Luke sets the scene, the interrogation begins in verse 8. They ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? And before a word of response is uttered, Luke tells us that in this moment, Peter is filled with the Spirit as he answered. Just as Jesus had promised in Luke 12, 12, that in moments like this, the Spirit would attend them, caring for them, and help them know exactly how to answer. And Peter at first says, if they're really being examined because they did a good deed to this needy man, you must know that the only way that he was healed was not by us, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And surely right then, like nails on a chalkboard, this group hears the name they thought they would never hear again. Jesus of Nazareth. And there are two clear statements that Peter presents in verse 10. Two proofs that it was, in fact, Jesus at work. The first proof he pulls out is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus. I wonder if he's smiling as he stands before this mob. The same ones who had crucified Jesus, God, raised from the dead. Surely some of them were involved in the cover-up of the empty tomb. Others had seen firsthand the veil that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus cried out, it is finished. They'd done all they could to get rid of this man from Nazareth, but now Peter is claiming he's alive again and he's seen him firsthand. For the third time in two chapters, Peter pairs the death and resurrection of Jesus together as the center of his message. What is the gospel? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Later, the apostle Paul would write to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-4, that this is the center of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. The heart of this point is that they may have put Jesus to death, but God raised him up seating him at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and now is orchestrating his mission from the throne of God through his heaven, through his people. So proof one, Jesus may have died, but he is alive and well. The second proof Peter puts forward is the healing and life Jesus brings. There in verse 10, By him, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. The Sanhedrin can rub their eyes in disbelief. They can let their jaws gape open. But this man, whom everyone knew for 40 years, sitting at the temple gate, unable to stand himself, is walking and leaping and praising God. 
You may not like it, but you can't undo it. You may not like it, but you must deal with it. How is it possible? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. As I thought about us being in this room this morning and sharing together in the Lord's Supper, we get to physically respond to that truth, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. We're proclaiming with the cup and the bread that the body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was spilled for us. And so now we drink deeply of Christ, the resurrection and the life. We don't drink deeply of the cup because it's just this big. But spiritually, we drink deeply of Christ, remembering what he's done for us. And even leading up to the act of taking communion, repenting of sin. And like we saw last week, the times of refreshing would come to us. I can't wait. Third, we look to Jesus, the cornerstone. Verse 11. As Peter stands before his accusers on trial, it would be expected that he would be there only to defend himself. What's unusual about the boldness that Peter demonstrates is he doesn't defend himself at all. He actually turns the tables on his accusers, on this council, and charges them with an even greater offense. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no way to separate the two ideas that I want to pull from this heading. They are so linked, so I'll just give them both to you now to say that Jesus is both the stone rejected and the stone chosen. He is both at the same time, in the day of Peter and in our day. Here, considering his audience, Peter builds his case by quoting an incredibly familiar psalm. Psalm 118, verse 22, which reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now let me tell you how the Pharisees would have dealt with that theologically. They would have heard in that quotation that God has chosen Israel... This stone that has been rejected by the nations surrounding it, but God himself had chosen it. But now what Peter's doing is applying that passage to Jesus. You can look up in the Gospels in the parable of the wicked tenants, it's sometimes called, where Jesus does that exact same thing with Pharisees listening in, pointing to the very same passage, Psalm 118. And what Jesus was doing in the parable pointing to this text, what Peter is doing now in the same, is showing how Jesus came to bring fulfillment to this old type. Let me explain. The word cornerstone would have made the Pharisees think about the temple itself, which is, which is what Peter wanted them to think. Cornerstone, the cornerstone of the temple. Why? 
because he wants them to understand that even that temple they love so much and would in just a matter of years be torn down, it's no longer even necessary because the one it pointed to had come. I love how Edmund Clowney explains this. He says, in Christ is realization. It's not much that Christ fulfills what the temple means. Rather, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. The coming of the true supersedes the figurative. The view of the temple made with hands will soon be destroyed, for its symbolism is fulfilled. What is he saying? That the real rock has come. The true cornerstone is now here. And this one that they've rejected, this one that they've crucified, was the very one sent by the Father to his people. As I thought about this, I I thought about both falling on the rock and standing on the rock. If we've come to faith in Christ, there's a sense in which we've fallen on the rock. Of course, there are those to whom Christ is a stumbling block, but to those of us who have come to know him, he's the rock in which we take refuge. He is our hiding place. He is the rock of our salvation. We did not stumble over him. We fell onto him. Christ has caused us to sing the words Top Lady gives us. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. And now we stand on him. We'll get to this more next week when we look at the boldness of Peter and John and the apostles. But here let me just say, in a culture that is increasingly opposed to the message of Christ, still we are called to stand with boldness and to proclaim it. Not backing down, not editing to make our message socially acceptable, but saying everything that we see in the word of God as faithful witnesses who stand on the truth and who proclaim it. And finally, we hear of Jesus The only name that saves, verse 12. The crescendo of the sermon ends with one of the most stunning summaries of the Christian faith in the entirety of Scripture. Peter's final words are a gospel bell. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there it is, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. The offer of salvation in Christ. Let it not be lost on us that Peter is addressing the very men who just weeks before worked every angle to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. The men who had his dearest friend whipped with a cat of nine tails, and a crown of thorn pressed upon his brow. 
the men whose hands are covered with the blood of Christ. And still Peter stands before them and tells them how they can be set free from their sin. How they can be forgiven their transgression. It is through the same Jesus they had killed. The first of the truths we find in this final verse is Jesus is the Savior. The emphasis of the statement is first set upon the power of Jesus that had done this miracle. His power to heal pointed to his power to save. The signs were only a small window into who Jesus is and what he had come to do. The resurrected Christ had healed this man. And even more, he'd come to bring salvation to all who would believe in his name. Listen, says Peter, salvation also is entirely the work of Jesus. Christ did it all. I thought about the angel that appeared to Joseph announcing the baby that would soon be born. He said, and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. And surely this is what Christ has come to do. The second truth we find is that Jesus is the only Savior. The double negatives reinforce the strength of the statement. There is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name. It's an exclusive salvation. Not that it's not available, but it's available only through Him. And now I think back to standing in Jerusalem, surrounded by people who believe that there is salvation in Yahweh as they await a Messiah. Others who think they will enter paradise by doing more right than wrong. Still some who are convinced by adhering to seven sacraments given by the church that in the end they'll end up okay. Maybe. Others who have turned from a Godward religion at all to a religion of self. In the end, every man-made religion is a call to do, do, do. Only in the pure gospel, only in Jesus, do we learn that everything in order to be saved has been done. And there is an eternal difference between the two. To do is a religion of works. Done is a relationship with God. Do is full of striving. Done means we can truly know peace with God only through Christ. And so just as Peter ends his sermon by sharing the good news of Jesus with with people who were responsible for his death, let me now end this sermon the same way, by sharing the good news of Jesus to people who were responsible for his death. You might say, well, we weren't there physically conspiring with the Pharisees. 
But we've conspired every time we seek to make ourselves the God of our own lives. We've been at it since we were born. You might say, well, we didn't ask for the crown of thorns to be placed on his head. But it was seen fit by a merciful God that he would punish his son, Jesus Christ, in your place by wearing that crown of shame for you. We weren't in the crowd yelling, crucify him. But in each sin we commit, we whisper it. Yet the same good news that was preached in the heart of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago still rings through this elementary cafeteria. There is salvation and life and joy and forgiveness available to you right now through what Jesus has come to do, to do what you could never do. So if you find yourself, maybe someone invited you, maybe you were looking for something to do on a Sunday morning, and here you are. In God's compassion toward you, you're hearing the good news of the gospel, how to be forgiven. So today, I invite you, turn from your sin, repent and turn to Christ, who can forgive you fully and freely. Through Jesus and only Jesus. So, by what power have our lives been turned upside down? By whose name has your life been rearranged? The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus the good shepherd, the light of the world, the bread of life. Jesus, the prince of peace, the Lord of hosts, the promised redeemer. Jesus, the man of sorrows who bore our sin, the spotless lamb of God who was slain upon the cross, the lion of Judah who roared once again on the third day. Jesus, our rock, our refuge, our friend. Jesus, the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. No, there is no other name by which we can be saved. And no other name sounds so sweet in the sinner's ear. Is Jesus your only hope? And does his name cause your heart to sing? Let's pray. Jesus, your name is like honey on our lips. Your spirit like water to our soul. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.